Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of RZ Weekly, our weekly podcast on religious Zionism, modern orthodoxy, and everything in between. Uh, we're talking, yeah, it's vacation time, and we've t- discussed many, many he- heavy, heavy topics. And we came across an article in uh, The Atlantic. It was a series being put out by Arthur Brooks. Every now and then he writes a piece about happiness. He's doing a study on happiness. So we thought we would, this would be a great opportunity to talk about this idea of happiness and trying to find happiness, especially as we're all struggling in the pandemic. Some people have their regular scheduled programming and others have really, you know, the, the pandemic is an opportunity or is an impetus to sort of reassess and try to figure out where we're going and what we're doing. So this is a great opportunity to discuss the idea of happiness. And I'll just start by sort of paraphrasing um, what Brooks writes about. He calls it success addicts choose being special over being happy. And he talks about the idea that success is this ephemeral, uh, unachievable goal because we're all desired of success. And the desire for success makes us do things that if success were anything else, instead of success were alcohol, People would call you an addict and they would have an intervention. He doesn't say this, but then it would be considered a negative. Meaning if you would miss family events and not have good relationships and all the things because of, because of alcohol, that would be terrible. But if you miss family events and don't have good relationships and can't focus on, other, on your family because you're at work or you're at a board meeting or you're what have you or trying to have success, that's considered, that's considered okay. And so he talks about the idea that success doesn't make a person happy. And as much as you can, as, as successful as you are, the second that you're, you find success, he says, you know, the dopamine or whatever that you get from that success, it, it dissipates and you have to go on to the next goal. And, and so I think this opportunity, I'm going to throw it to uh, Johnny first to talk about the, the, your, what was your reaction to this piece. And if you wouldn't mind also, obviously it makes you, uh, we're all, when you talk about success and happiness or the idea of happiness, we talk about the idea of ashir hasamech bechelko. You know, immediately your mind goes to that that you have like wealth and happiness. That in the Mishnah itself connected the two together. That don't think that wealth is going to make you happy. Wealth isn't a goal. It, it, it's, it's a it's a it's a means to another end. But simcha is samech bechelko more than more than wealth is connected to it. But take us a little deeper. Take us to beyond that. If you have a night, if you'd like to. What was your reaction to this idea of being addicted to success? And my final question for you is, do you think I'm addicted to success now that you've known me for quite a, for a lot, for your working with me? Uh, am I addicted to success or uh, <laughs> I'm not driving you too crazy? That's my question. <laughs> you can start with so, that one. <laughs> so I think the article, uh, and more broadly our conversation, needs to begin by asking ourselves how we define success. Because really the Mishnah that you quote in Pirkei Avot says, if you define success by being then wonderful. Then that's that's Oshel. That's what you should be working towards. You should be happy with. But the critique is too many people measure success by much more shallow um, expressions. By you know how many people like what you say or follow what you do or how much money you get by work or how large your house is or how nice your car is. If that's the case, then they're quite fleeting. And once you have them, they dull quite quickly, and then you go to chase the next success. So do I think that it's wrong to chase a meaningful life and to define that as success? I don't think that's wrong. I think we need to define success ahead of time because all too often we pursue the wrong things. 
And as the, the author explained, it leads to profound ups, but also profound downs in terms of our emotional experience in life. And lots of uh, unhappiness, lots of depression, lots of comparison. And at the end of the day, there's always going to be people richer than you, or people with bigger offices, or people with bigger houses. If that's what you define as success, then if you love money, you're never going to be satisfied by it. That's a really bad measure for success. Okay, so I agree. So I'll push back at that. And I totally, that's, a, that's, a, that's the important point. But how would you say success is measured in our society, in the, in the communities in which we live? That's my, I mean, we're, this is a religious Zionist, modern Orthodox podcast. So you've been, we're, we're, it's like a very narrow slice of the Jewish community. And I'm very comfortable with that. In our narrow slice of the Jewish community, how is success defined? How in your, I think this is a great uh, um, springboard. I'm going to ask you and then go to Molly. How do we as a community define our success, which in turn defines our happiness? Not what would you like it to be? Because we all know what it should, well, we can talk about what it should be, but what is it in your, perspe in your perspective? The, tra the fact is, you know, I'm, it's no point talking about others unless I talk about myself uh, or my family or the orbit in which I live. And there are times where certainly measures of success are quite shallow. You know, my kids would say, you know, this family have this thing. They've got a pool outside. We should have a pool outside, right? Or they've got this, you know, and their grass is greener, which in most cases it's actually because they've got fake grass and their grass is always <laughs> quite seriously greener than ours. I hate fake grass. Um, I just, I can't do fake grass. <laughs> um, so I'm, there's no denying the fact that within all communities, including the religious Zionist community, uh, people live within material world and oftentimes look at the material goods of themselves and others and ask questions. I get that. I think that's part of the, the you know, the, the way we live in life. And I wouldn't think, uh, I wouldn't presume that any part of the community can fully quash that. I do believe, though, that people who have a better understanding of the spiritual versus material hierarchy of life should have that hierarchy quite clearly placed. Such that when you hear that somebody's done good deeds, you know, achieved something meaningful, that should be a bigger wow, a significantly bigger wow than when they get the bigger house or the bigger car or they've got whatever, the bigger pool, etc. Again, our task is to give of what we have. That's also important that we should admire those who give of themselves, of their time and of their resources. We do notice what people have in the, in the religious world, in the religious Zionist world. But that shouldn't be the measure of success or the key thing that is part and parcel of our, our you know, conversation. When you ask the question, now, what are you discussing on a regular weekday meal? If it, is it the real things or is it the shallow things? Molly, what, how, what's your perception? What, how is it, as a community do we define, do we define success? Not in the okay. explicit way, but in the subtle subconscious way that motivates most people's actions. Okay, so before, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to be as as specific as you want me to be because I want to frame it first. Um, Wait, frame I, it and then be specific. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'll try to get away from being specific. I'll see if I can wiggle out of it. Uh, no. um, yeah, go ahead. Okay, <laughs> I, I loved this article. I thought it was a wonderful article because I actually think about this issue a lot. What What is success in life? And just by the way, you should know he links to another article that he wrote that explains 
actually answers the question you asked about Corona and success and how do you define success and happiness. So just so you know, it's called, first of all, I happen to love Arthur Brooks. So like, shout out to Arthur Brooks. I think he's amazing. Well, he's uh, a regular listener, I've heard. So if Arthur, I, I hope so. <laughs> Arthur, I think you're fabulous. Uh, he has a, an, uh, another article called How to Increase Happiness. And it really right, goes He links to it. it. Right. He links to it. Yeah, he links but it's to basically it. it's a great article. family, spend time with the yes. things that are important okay. to you. Exactly. Like, but, obvious. Okay, go ahead. Okay, yeah, that's obvious to you, but 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 to me, I think the question is like, well, how do you define success? So like, does success mean meaningful work? And if success means meaningful work, we shouldn't be against success, right? So like when I think about this, I often think about the tension between like, wait, if success means meaningful work, then but like when I think about this question, I often think about Adam 1 versus Adam 2, right? Adam 1 is out there in the external world. I know you're laughing at me because okay, fine, but this is really... <laughs> I'm sorry, it. can I use a word to tell me if this is appropriate? It's so adorable when you're like, oh, I always think about Adam 1 and Adam 2. Like, okay, okay, great. All right, I'm glad. <laughs> I don't know if that's appropriate, but it's fine. Um, but that's really what I think about. Because I think about competition versus care. I think about external um, giving to the world and like making your mark on the world and being productive. And I, then I think about internal work, about taking care of yourself and taking care of your family and building relationships. And, and I tend to believe that um, I, I tend to, when I think about those two things in competition with each other, so I tend to, to, to lean towards Adam 2 much more, and then I get kind of stuck in like, well, where's the role of Adam 1? But the truth is that, that I really like this article because, do you understand what I just said? Because you have a confused look on your face. Meaning, Adam 2 versus Adam 1 terms. Adam 1 means go out, be successful, make your mark on the world, discover... Yeah. I didn't that. know which one was which. Corona. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Adam 2 is work on your relationship with yourself, your relationship with God, your relationship with others, nurture internal relationships, and be willing to sacrifice for those relationships. And I think, what, to your first question, I think that we do live in a world that's too Adam 1 heavy and not Adam 2 enough heavy. We value, and that's where, that's where yeah, I find... Our world doesn't value Adam 2 at all. Right. Exactly. At all. Our world so, could care right. less what you're going on inside as long as it's on Facebook. And, okay. And so I agree. So that's exactly. So so for me, it's like we, we're, we're suffering from a lack of Adam 2 in the world. We're suffering from undervaluating Adam 2. We're suffering from undervaluing families. We're suffering from undervaluing parenting. I really believe these things with my whole heart. And therefore, I, I believe that we should all listen to Arthur Brooks. But then I say, but but Adam 1 has value too. So the, the way I, what I liked about how he defined it was, he says, I'm not saying that meaningful work isn't important, right? Success and meaningful work are not the same thing. Meaningful work is actually part of his formula, right? He has three equations in that second article. And one of them is equation two equals faith plus family. Faith, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean um, a specific religion. I think it just means a, a, a connection to transcendence. But okay, faith plus family plus friends plus work. Okay, so two out of those four things have to do with relationship, and I actually um, think that if anybody's interested, there's an amazing, amazing TED Talk by a guy named, I think, Waldiger. They did a study, a 70-year longitudinal study happiness. So Johnny knows the study. They basically discovered that the most important metric for for well-being, um, emotional well-being, mental health, physical health, emotional health, everything is the, is the quality of your relationships. It's not how much money you have. It's not how much fame you have. It's none of those things. It's the, if you have deep relationships, that is protective of on all the metrics of well-being. So, so that's that's family plus friends. He also has faith, which is transcendence, and then he also has work. So, so work means doing something that you find meaningful and productive in the world. So that's where like you can put Adam one in. Success is not that. Right, and this is Ruby. What I think you're talking about, success. Hold on one second. I just have to find the other article. Success. I love how he defines it because it's amazing. He says, um, 
Wait, how he defines it or how society yes. defines he it? Defi- he, de- he defines it, but once we understand how he defines it, we can apply it to society. Su- uh, success means, um, here, he quotes William James, we are not only gregarious animals liking to be in sight of our fellows, we have an innate propensity to get ourselves noticed and noticed favorably by our kind. Oh. And success makes us attractive to others, right? Success is about fame, is about approval, is about other people putting you on a pedestal, plus what he, what he calls specialness. Right. Other people thinking that you're special and unique. Right. And that, he says, when you chase the, those things, end up you end up chasing these shallow things while you're shaking it, your head. It is. It is an addictive quality. It social is. Social media. It is ab- social yes. media is totally is totally based on that. Correct. Correct. And I think yeah. they define it that way. is so helpful because then when you think about that, Adam, one thing, wait, but I do want to be productive. I do want to do work. I do. Right. It doesn't have to be about external work versus internal work. It can be about um External work and internal work are both really valuable, and they both have their place, and you have to think about how, how you want to balance them. But when external work becomes a drive for ego satisfaction or that chasing that, again, I always think of um, in it, um, Death of a Salesman, Arthur Miller, right? Did you read, either read, read Death of a Salesman? So, I'm sure okay. Johnny did. Okay. Death of a Salesman is an amazing, amazing play, and it's about this person who basically is destroyed by the fact that he realizes that that uh, he has no meaning in his life and that he, he just wants to be noticed, he just wants to be famous, he just wants to be successful, he just wants to be a good salesman. And he's a terrible salesman and his life falls apart and it's a tragedy. But Arthur Salesman in the introduction, Arthur Salesman, Arthur, Salesman, Arthur Bill, Miller, even I knew that. <laughs> he, he wrote an introduction to what he meant, to what, what he was writing about when he wrote Death of a Salesman. And he wrote, it's the human need to carve your name on a block of ice in a boiling hot day. And I thought that was such an amazing image, right? It's like, I matter, I notice, remember me, notice me, I'm special, right? I want to leave my mark on posterity. And the chasing after success is, is always going to be doomed to failure. It's the wrong chase. There's nothing wrong with chasing meaning and purpose. But if it's going to be, you know, fail. Hey, okay, I'm, I got to push back. Even before I, I have a whole point to make, but before I... Okay. The entire world in which we live, most people found this thing on Facebook or whatever. They're sharing it on their social media. And we're doing this. Johnny said it before. We're doing this to promote our, to promote our identity, that people should be aware of it. Maybe, you know, they'll hire us to do cool Jewish things because we're very capable people and people seek you out and they'll come to Lindemann. The Like our whole society is based on the opposite of this. The entire yeah. opposite of this. So you talk about finding balance. I Like I'm listening to you thinking... Balance, balance. There's no balance. It's all Adam. Which one? One. All Adam. One. It's all Adam. One. Adam. Two. God. Like, if I have a five minutes, like, if I have five seconds in the middle of tefillah to think about my family, you know what I'm saying? And thank God for Shabbat. Thank God when I like I literally when I put down the phone and you know you say well so just put it down more. I I don't know. I can't. Yeah. I just I'm at chata'a. I can't. But like when I put down the phone, it's like, oh, oh. I'll Correct. see you in 25 hours. Goodbye. Like, you know what I'm saying? I yeah. can read a book. I can enjoy. I can talk to my, like, whatever. Balance. Molly, help balance. us. Guide us for we balance. Have, okay. So we all have to, and again, I'm a little skeptical of the whole, um, the blessings of Corona, the positives of Corona, because a lot of people are really suffering and they're not finding blessings and they're not finding suffering and there needs to be space for that. At the same time, I do think that, and I think it's going on a little too long, but I do think that if, um, 
if, if, if we do use this as an opportunity to take a deep breath and recognize that um, to put ourselves back, we can't, I don't know if we can fight it as a culture. Sorry, I'm going to push back again and say, no, 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 Corona, Corona is worse because instead of having real relationships with people, all you have are the fake relationships that you see with them on Facebook about how they do this fun thing okay, with their so kids. Okay. Nobody told, Johnny like had a beautiful picture and I'm sure it was great, but he didn't share like the ride with the kids fighting in the back. He didn't, I didn't see right. that. Right, so, so I, that's, that's what I'm saying. I think we have to, sorry, let me just make this last point and then I'll yeah. turn. I think we all have to take responsibility for ourselves and our choices and our lives. And I think we have to fight the street. I don't think there's any other way of doing this. I think we have to be radical, um, revolutionaries and the way we're going to be revolutionaries is by fighting for the individual and fighting for our relationships that's how we're going to and, we're, and fighting for for decent good interpersonal relationships that I think that's the that's what the revolution needs to be not any of the other stuff that people think the revolution needs to be today the revolution needs to be um, deep meaningful relationships with intimate relationships I, I always um, make for my students, I make circles, concentric circles, and the inside is self, outside is family, outside is close friends, then is community, then is, is acquaintances, right? However, we have to work on those inner circles a lot more, and we have to radically stand up for them, because we're not going to fix society from the outside, and it's never going to happen. The best we can do is, 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 again, be revolutionaries in our own lives and, ha and, and work on our meaningful relationships. And if that creates a ripple effect, if enough of us do it, and it, that ends up affecting society, Matov. Okay, sounds good. I want you to think we're going to come back to you about something a little more concrete than that. Like, it's nice, but like, how are you yeah. supposed to do that? It's not like, well, we have to radical revolutionaries. That's very nice, very interesting. But what, what exactly does that mean? So I Put actually down your phone. And, and, and interact with your children, call a friend and have a coffee with them in your backyard. Um, do that. Start there. That's fair. Um, very fair. More, more fair than I can tell you. It's interesting. You talked about the idea. He talked about the idea. So I, I, when I talked about success, so we all come to, come to it. You think about family or I'm sorry, Adam one, Adam two. The, the immediate thing that comes to mind is the, is the shift that I experienced when I went from, from America to Israel. I always think about that in terms of the cultural stream, the undercurrent of cultural attitudes that, that really guide a society, guide societal values. And there are things that you, that you don't sense until you're like immersed in one and immersed in another. And I remember quite clearly, like when you meet someone in America, the very first thing they'll ask you is, oh, what do you do? Okay, so the reason they're asking you what do you do is because they're interested in your profession. I believe deep down what they're really asking you is, Anybody know? How much money do you make? Because they want to assess and understand, oh, I'm a rabbi. So then the next question they would ask me is, oh, how big is your shul? Because they, again, they're, they're asking me, the question they're asking me is, how important are you, are you to me? Meaning, how, how much power do I have to, to have to give to you? So if you're a, I don't know, a high-powered lawyer or you own this big business, oh, then I have to look at you in one way. If you're a social worker, no, mainly, okay, maybe support your family, maybe you don't. And I know, it's a, I know it's a cynical way of looking at things, but think about why, why do you ask somebody, if you ask them, what do you do? What do you really want to know? Okay, when I got to Israel, I mean, think about it. When you meet somebody new, the first question they ask you is not, what do you do? It's very rare that they'll say, oh, what do you, what's your profession? Because in Israel, the first question they'll ask you is like, oh, where are you from? Who do I know? And if you're Israeli, they'll ask you, where are you in the army? There's a, there's a, it's, it's just a different first question. And that difference is fundamentally different. Meaning, you know, like I, was, I realized in my shul, 
maybe because of dues or because the way the way Jewish communities, especially our communities, are structured, right? There's so much in a, in in, in Chutzlar, There's so much need for money, so much need for donations for rich people in order to make a shul go around, in order to make a school go around. Everybody knows who the rich people are. You just know who they are. And as a rabbi, you know who they are. And even the poor people, you know who they are. Whereas when I got to Israel, I, you, I didn't know what a lot of people did for a living. I think many people, I still don't know what they do for a living. And this guy's like a lawyer. I, th I think he works like, like a, the big job is high tech. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, that's the, that's the big job. And those guys aren't rich either. They're doing okay, but they're not rich either. And it was such a refreshing thing that, you know, you interacted with people for who they were and their, their community status was just not, not based upon, it was based upon, oh, that guy knows the whole laning or, you know, this guy makes good kiddushim or, you know, this guy likes to fly off the handle all the time. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and it was just a, a different fundamental, fundamental value system. And as time has gotten along, I've been here over 10 years now, I see Israel sort of moving in back into the American direction, sort of. I'm not really sure. It's hard to know, but I, I see it a little bit. And I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know how much also where I live, Yad Binyamin is represented by other places. When you talk about being about success, I think it's important to like have that sort of under, underlying cultural awareness of what are the values that are guiding your societal choices that are even the, the, bed, the, the bedrock, the foundation of, before you even get to religion or God or faith or anything like that, what's guiding you? you know, and I think that what do you do and how do you do it? I, I also think about in America, in the modern Orthodox community, the religious community, the specter of the need to, the need to make a tremendous amount of money, to earn a tremendous amount of money simply to live a Jewish life, mostly to pay Jewish day school tuitions, is so overarching that, I mean, they've done studies on this. You talked about really meaningful work. Right? The thing that, that blows my mind, like how many Jews are lawyers and doctors? And there's no way that all these people want to be lawyers and doctors. It's just, there's no way. But the, the professions they choose, and this is obvious, are guided by their need to earn so much money that they don't have meaningful work. The meaningful work is that their children go to Jewish day school. And I think that's something that here in Israel, yes, it's expensive and it's getting more expensive. We were talking about this the other day. For us to send our children to the, to the places we want to send them to, that, that has a societal impact because then I can't necessarily do the meaningful work that I want because I have to earn X, Y, Z in order to pay tuition, in order to pay, you know, send my, my daughter to open or whatever. So these, are, these, these factors all come together and then they rob a person I mean, I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. I'm not a tax lawyer. But the idea of spending 70 or 80 hours in an office in Manhattan, you know, doing tax law, like pouring over contracts, some people love it. I'm sure some people really love it. But it doesn't sound like meaningful work other than the fact that you have to support your family. And if that's what has to be, then the idea of, of, of like saying, oh, no, you're a success addict, I think is unfair. Because you're not a success addict. You're, you're a tuition addict. You, you know, you're required to send your kids to day school. And that's something that we have to be aware of. And something in Israel is very different. Johnny, yes. Just a quick aside, although I don't want to elaborate, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has a very interesting discussion about meaningful work, talking about rice paddies. And a person can do something which for others perhaps may seem mundane, but they do things and it sees progression and they're able to achieve things at the end of the day, that can be profoundly meaningful. So oftentimes we see somebody else's meaningful work 
and you, you had a neighbor not too long ago who was a plumber who every day he comes back with a feeling that he's really made done meaningful work. Anybody who dismisses that doesn't understand uh, the greatness of a, of a great plumber. But I do want to read you a great <laughs> paragraph, uh, which is which comes from a symposium booklet produced by Atid years ago. And there was a great article written by Yossi Prager titled Affluenza and its Complications. And there he says the following, and, I, and it, it really made a big difference when I first read it, and I read it oftentimes. He says, just as, just as influenza can kill, affluenza can sp spiritually deaden. deaden sorry. Focusing people on their own needs and wants, increasing their sense of entitlement, and reducing feelings of gratitude or amazement arising from the grifts we have been given. Now, the reason I mention that is, you know, truth is there are Israelis with, with, uh, with a lot and can sometimes uh, have that sense of entitlement. There are, there are Americans with a lot who don't. I don't think it's an absolute Israel diaspora divide. Truth is, in Israel, I think we talk a lot more about money, but in terms of its usage, Outside of Israel, people talk a lot more about things in terms of what they represent, but I don't think it's as simplistic as, as black and white. However, the, one of the reasons why I know you guys both know I've been writing yourself about Birkat Shechianu is that lack of appreciation about what we have. And that's what that mission in Birkat Avot is all about. Too many of us have things and we simply say, that's my entitlement. In fact, on a purely uh, measurable scale, Many, many Orthodox Jews from across the, the spectrum no longer say Birkat Shechiano when they buy things. They kind of say, well, you know, to buy a new suit, what is it? It's just a few hundred dollars. You know, I had that. Or, or they buy new fruit and they don't say the bracha and they don't thank God. The problem isn't necessarily what we can afford or what we can't afford. It's a fact that we've forgotten to link. Between Johnny, I have to stop for a second. Every time, every time I learn the Mishnah and you realize how poor they were and how like how they would save every little thing. We're now gonna learn Mishnah Kalim and how like, okay, a Kli has a hole in it, then you can still use it for this. And then if it has a hole this, it's still a Kli until it has a hole the size of a pomegranate that it can't hold right. anything in it. And like, it's a, like, I try to tell my students and the people that I study with, we don't realize the level of affluence that we, that we enjoy and experience. And I just made Correct, but the, the point of Birkat Shechianu is not that we should forget about it and not say the bracha. We should remind ourselves each time we have something, we have this thing. It's extraordinary. Something which just in a hundred years ago, my great grandparents would be amazed by. You know, I can easily afford and my kids can easily afford. If we fail to join those dots automatically, then whatever we have, no matter how rich you are or, you know, how much you may think that things are very difficult or things may well be incredibly difficult, you know, then you yourself have demonstrated that material goods are much more important than expressing appreciation. I'll just mention one further person whom you know far, far better than I. And I'm, so, I'm sorry, uh, 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 Yerimi, is it? There's somebody in Yad Binyamin. Shlomo Yerimi, yeah, he just, he, he just visited me just like five minutes before this podcast. I see, okay. Yeah. So I used to live in Yad Binyamin some years ago, and what Shlomo is a tzaddik. Who, who collects things from people and gives it to people who are underprivileged. Nothing for him is useless because he knows people for whom this is the difference between living with dignity and not. You know, all too often we take for granted, you know, a, even a small refrigerator, even a table and chairs. Somebody like Shlomo Yerimi says, that, that I know for a person, it'll make them feel like a mensch. And he says, you know, I'll take it from you and I'll give it to them. And that's an extraordinary thing. So, 
you know, we, we measure questions of success. We, we discuss concepts of happiness. We need to thank God. We also need to appreciate what we have and not always perpetually be comparing what we have to other people. But going back to what Mali said. Okay, no, no, I have to stop you for a second just before. Yeah. Didn't you send me, did you send me the, the initial, the speech of uh, Tehila Friedman? Is it, did you send it to us? I, yeah. I posted it. I posted it. So I watched it with my wife this morning. And so first of all, I have to say that you, you really have to um, be able to appreciate her like sophistication, the level of her Hebrew and her eloquence. But then she, at the end, she like in her lament, her she she was sort of tearing up about the fact that she said, like my daily life was the dream of the prophets. Like they 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 dreamed, and this is something that I have like in my when I get up in the morning. And I I thought of that when you just said that. So uh, I just as an aside to all of our listeners. It's very much, I don't know, if does anybody subtitle it? Did anybody translate it? Because um, every now and then when something is a sensation like that, it's, yeah. it's very much, if you're an English listener, or an, if you can understand, if you can follow her Hebrew, it's very worthwhile to, uh, to listen to the Nu'um B'chorah, the initial Knesset speech of Chaveret uh, Knesset Tila Friedman. Sorry, Johnny, go ahead. No, no, no. I, was, I mean, I think that really sums it up. Personally, there are, you know, whenever I drive, and I still have, and I've mentioned on this podcast before, any time I drive to a shalim, I pinch myself. Like, this is unbelievable. That's rich. That's richness. The fact that I'm driving a 20-year-old Nissan, right, which I hope can make it up the hill, that put that aside. I get to get up the hill, Bezrat Hashem, uh, Bezrat Nissan as well, right, and, and, and make it there. You know, this is what we talked about as being the in the days of festival festive celebrations of our nations the fact that we live in a time where wherever you live in the world i know corona has been a limitation but yeah you can travel and you can make it somewhere and perhaps you need some assistance to do so but there are others who should be there to assist you and if you have the wherewithal you should be the assister so that's that's what happiness is sometimes it's the ability to help another fulfill their journey the ability for us to take steps to live a meaningful life it's not measured by you know the, the, the size of your office, the size of your house, and all these things which oh, I, I can't deny make a difference, but they should never, ever be the reason why you get up in the morning, go to sleep at night. It should be the lives you touch, right? The, the values you hold dear, and, and the people for whom are enriched by your existence on this earth. Okay, I want to go back to something Molly had mentioned, which is the notion of making your mark on the world. And Molly, when you said that, when you, when you mentioned that, it immediately made me think, I listened to our recent um, uh, podcast, I listened to the Slate Political Godfest, because I need to know what all the liberals think, and, um, and it's actually quite interesting, and there's a, a political pundit named John Dickerson, who wrote a book on the presidency, which I didn't read, but he mentioned the idea that anyone, anyone who's, who, who desires, who has this, uh, the possibility of being president, it requires a certain level of egotism. You know, you know, like that. There's, you mentioned this idea of balance, the idea of making your mark on the world, and I, I think it's definitely true that in order to do anything in life, you know, like the only the only leader that we ever had who had could care less was Moshe Rabbeinu was a Nabi Kol Adam, and he said, "Hakadosh Baruch Hu Shlach Nabi Anybody but me, like pass. I'm I'm good. Midian, no problem. Sheep, it's all good, right? But the rest of us, like we're drawn, we're motivated. People do great things because of that need to make their mark on the world. And people who don't feel any need to make their mark on the world, they don't. And they don't push things forward, and they don't do great things, and they don't build good programs, and they don't, you know, they don't, they don't, 
Like there's a level of a balance of egotism and a need to be recognized uh, that I think is has its positive aspects. So that being said, what's a healthy sense in your mind? I'm I'm, I'm talking to Molly. What what do you think is a healthy sense of a desire to make your mark on the world? And how does a person how would a person know? Well, one second. Now it's about your ego and less about the mark. And now it's a, you're success driven as opposed to happiness driven or health driven or whatever you want to call it. Right. I think that's an amazing question. I think that's exactly the question that I've been like struggling with for years. I'm thinking about this issue and thinking about this question. First of all, I just also want to say that in this, this Arthur Brooks article, he talked about exactly what you, what you both said. His equation number three is satisfaction equals what you have divided by what you want. And he says most of us think that therefore we have to get more halves. He says no, you have to you have to limit what you want. This is exactly what you guys are just talking. These articles like a series of Musser articles, basically. Yeah, <laughs> he's great. That's what I'm saying. He's really it's it's great. Okay, so in terms of your question, so that's exactly meaning. I I also have been thinking about that question of like with within Judaism, we definitely don't negate this idea of being driven and having ambition and being motivated and wanting to make things better, right? And again, I think with this a lot, just in terms of like um, spiritual orientations, because I'm very, very into mindfulness and that has led me on a path into understanding um, the spiritual paths of the East. And um, not to say that they don't believe in achievement, they do, but but the emphasis is very often much more on, on letting go and on... Uh, on um, basically like you know less achievement oriented doing versus being less doing more being and Judaism does not believe uh, that there isn't a value to doing and I think as I'm trying to tease this out I think what you said is exactly right I think what we're what, what Judaism is trying to orient us towards is yes you should be doing and the reason you should but, but the reasons you should be doing are because of meaning and purpose more then driven out of ego and fame and a need for approval and a need for to fill a hole, a, you know, an emptiness inside you that was never filled because you because you weren't raised with a sense of unconditional love and acceptance. And so to tease out why, sorry, but that's, I think, a big part of why people are doing it. It's like I always think, like, what, if you're going to raise emotionally healthy kids, are they just going to, like, sit around all day and, like, you know, not achieve in the world? Or, like. How do you balance? How do you find that balance? So I think. Don't the, worry, yeah, your kids will blame you for something. You'll be okay. Instead, they will always blame you for something. That's <laughs> that's the rule. Thank God. That's my mantra. Them something blame you for too. something. That's it's right. true. And also, somebody once said, like, thank God, this way they have a reason to go to therapy. They'll work it out. Thank God you gave them something to go to therapy for. Um, but, but but I think we do have to. Uh, it's, less of a joke than you think, but okay. It's not. It's not a joke, <laughs> but it's 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 good. It's okay. Um, so that maybe that's, that's also a piece of it is like we're not going to get perfection. We're not going to erase their egos. We're not going to completely erase their egos. And maybe it's, it shouldn't be so black and white. It, it, it's okay to have room for ego, and it's okay to. We're all human. We all do want to be. We are social creatures. We are influenced by how what people think of us. Um, you, you, you were speaking about communities. I have a neighbor who says every community has a value which they put up there, and that everybody's striving to achieve, and it's usually external, and, and it's usually superficial. The question is, what value is it? Is it intellectual achievement? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it, right? right? Like, what is the value of your community? So, like, we're all human. Like, it's okay. But if we can try to move that drive less towards that ego and more towards production, right, to be more like Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu is an anaf mikol adam. Anaf does not mean I don't have... 
I don't have, I'm not aware of my talents. And Amikola Adam means I'm aware of my talents, but I'm also aware that they are a, a gift from God that I'm meant to be using in the world to make the world a better place. And Avram Tursky has this beautiful piece about Anava, and he says the opposite of Anava um, is not, how does he say it? Anava is not humility. Is not, is not, no, humility is, no, not the word humility. He says, thinking that you're nothing, right, and having a tremendous ego are not the opposites of each other. They're usually, they're usually very tied to each other, right? Because a person who always needs external validation, right, a, 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 we think of as a narcissist or an egotist, tell me how great I am, tell me how great I am, tell me how great I am, that's not usually a person who has a very strong sense of self-esteem or sense of, sense of self, right? That's usually a person who's lacking a very strong sense of self and self-confidence, and therefore he needs to get it from the outside world. So wherever Avram Tversky, professor, the psychologist, professor Avram Tversky says is real anava is knowing your worth, being so secure in your worth that you don't need external validation for it, and therefore you're driven to use your worth to give to the world. And I think we have to try to move in that direction with a lot of understanding and forgiveness that for a lot of reasons, we're always going to be human, and there's always going to be that piece of us that also wants the, the validation from the outside world and, and okay and we're aware of that but we, we we should try to kind of you said like how do you find that balance i think the first step is awareness right what's my motivation what should be my motivation um and how's that going to shape my choices johnny um well i'm actually going to plug something which i've been exploring for many years which is a concept of ethical wills you know the, the jewish tradition many people would argue even severed vibe is a form of a, of a ethical will but certainly we have many hundreds of special letters written by great teachers who perhaps towards the end of their life, but not necessarily, express what they want their ethical legacy to be. What's profound about that literature isn't just what's in it, but also what's not. Oftentimes, if a person spends so much time trying to get the big car, the big house, when they evaluate their life, you'll find that that's not mentioned. What's mentioned is what have they achieved, not certainly work-wise, but in life. You know, how, what they've achieved in terms of building families or building communities or building things for society. And ethical wills, I would say, the best Sifre Musa you can get. Moreover, it's something which I've told many people that they should write. Uh, Daniel Cohen has a great talk about how if you reflect on what your life should be remembered by, you'll reverse engineer your life and make sure you live that way. And Didn't I you write a book about that? I think you wrote a book did. about that. I yeah, have it. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, what would you like to say about people, you know, once you've died? But um, I personally have written my own ethical will. I update it every couple of years. And I believe really? it's a very, yeah. And I believe how it's did, a very, how, very did, how did that go? Picture. How do you do that? You like, I'm like, fascinating. You sit down and you're like, I mean, just like ponder what, it, what, what kind of messages do I want? Uh, so, so I'll, tell you, I'll tell you how it worked, actually. I said to myself, you know, I think this is a really beautiful thing for a person to do. So in, in preparation, in fact, whilst I was living in Yabinyamin, I, le I learned through with my good friend, Robert Curtis, all the ethical wills that Israel Abrahams produced in his wonderful book, Hebrew Ethical Wills. Like we read a whole bunch of examples, tried to get into that right headspace. This sounds, like a, this sounds like a great topic for your Beit Midrash. Ethical, huh. like a sheer ethical will. Uh, I've ethical given will. many shirim about it. In fact, no, I'm serious. That, it sounds fascinating. I, I'm serious. I've given shirim about it. In actual fact, I can tell you stories of people who've taken those shirim and unfortunately, not too long afterwards, they've found themselves uh, encountering 
illness and death in the family and how they changed the way they thought about it made a big difference. Well, let me tell you one quick, quick story because it would perhaps... No, I, really, I, I want to hear how to do it, but I'm really serious. I think you should think about giving a series on how to write an ethical will. I think that would be fascinating for people. Basimcha. Uh, one story, for example, is uh, there, was a, there was a lady who came to one of my shirim. Actually, I was, it was a shir that I delivered uh, it, down south near Belsheva. Um, and and she was very, very moved by this idea of ethical wills. And then unfortunately, a few weeks later, her father took ill and she went to the States. He was very, very ill. And she said to herself, you know, I could wait for my father to pass away and then to deliver a eulogy and tell him what he meant to me. But why would I do that? And she wrote it and she delivered it to him whilst he was alive. And it wow. changed their relationship completely. All wow. too often we think about our values when there's we can't affect the people around us. But when you actually concretize them and express it to them, you know, when Baruch Hashem, you've got health, or when you're able to communicate, it can be a big game changer. And that's something which I, I strongly believe in. And uh, anybody who's interested, I'm happy to share resources about it, etc. Wow. I think, okay, that's a good place to stop. Um, um, Johnny, you'll let us know when you start giving that share in your coil. Mm -hmm. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. It's not a good place to stop. You didn't tell us. A couple of good hints about writing your ethical will. You didn't uh, tell us. Well, I, I, well, the truth is, a person should ask themselves, you know, what do I stand for? Uh, it's not about, okay, what am I leaving for my family in terms of monetary value? What values are truly mine? And sometimes a person isn't sure, but when they, they're able to put it down on paper, I think, you know, education is really important to me. Then you make sure that everything you do in your life you know, expresses that value. And for me, it was a lot to do with, uh, obviously, faith, a lot to do with uh, trying to show kindness to each other. You know, sometimes certain things you didn't think were so important to you. Ah, so I'm a lady. So when I was writing my ethical will, I realized, actually, that's a big part of, of what I am. And, and then... <laughs> Wait, this is that you, you, you just tricked me because you, you can't just write the ethical will. Then you have to, like, do whatever it says. Otherwise, it doesn't count. Yeah, you have, to, you, know what, you have to do what it says, <laughs> and then you have fair. to write it, and then you should live according to it. That's, but wouldn't it be more accurate Daniel to Cohen say, says. write your ethical will based on the way you act? Because that's no. your real ethical will, not the Moshe Rabbeinu you wish you were? No, the truth is, it, it is and it is, right? It expresses who you are, and it affirms who you want to be. It's, and that's what Daniel Cohen talks about. In fact, you can listen to his talk online. I, was, I think it was, uh, I'll send a link, perhaps we'll put it on our on our Facebook page, it was one of those profound talks. If you ask my students, I, I play it very, very regularly. He talks about the Elijah moments. He talks about how there are moments in life which remind you of why you're alive and what you can do. And it's not to do with, you know, how much value you have in terms of your bank account. It's not to do with those physical measures of success. It's to do with the, the lives you touch. And I'll say one further thing, which is we mentioned briefly about social media. And you both know that I'm a big social media user, but you don't, you know, there is mediums, but you can use them for the positive. And it, sometimes a letter can move people to tears just as much as a message you can write uh, on WhatsApp can be very, very meaningful to somebody at the right moment in their life. So harnessing technology can so, be a profound thing. Measuring, though, how many Johnny, I, I totally agree with you. I'm also on Facebook and I do it to promote like the learning that I do. And I've actually I've met a I've met really fascinating people in that way. But and this goes back to what I said to Molly. I still, I post something about a Mishnah or a video or whatever, and I still want to see how many people like it. You know what I'm saying? I still want, I want that reaction. I want, I need that, I need that dopamine. So it's well, like that, I'm, that struggle between, yes, using the Klee, being and understanding and being aware, 
But at some time, but at the same time, Zuckerberg, like, I, I don't know, I, I really, really believe that he has, uh, he's got a lot, a lot to answer for in, in the way the world has moved in a, in a direction because it's such a cynical use of people's need for validation. And, and I really, I feel like it's, it's, a, it's a blatant pull for money using, uh, um, drawing on people's most base instinct and need for acceptance and validation. And uh, it's and ultimately it's it, you can see the terrible effect it's having on on our society. Terrible effect. Nonetheless, success. Okay, yay. Hey, um, I just point out sure, one sure. Uh, just to follow up on what Johnny said. The other Brooks, David Brooks. Um, yes. Right. So he, one of his most famous pieces is is an uh, op-ed column called the Moral Bucket List, where he talks about resume virtues and and um, eulogy virtues, and he talks about exactly Johnny elaborated on it very beautifully, but if anybody's interested in reading about this this idea, he talks about resume virtues being what we're talking about, success, eulogy virtues being what Johnny talks about it as in the ethical will, and he talks about um, how, to, how to live that way, right? Basically what Ruby was saying. What, what are, if you want to cultivate your eulogy virtues rather than your resume virtues, what, should you, what kind of virtues should you be thinking about putting in your life, and which, what kind of virtues should you be minimizing, or what kind of vices should we, should we be minimizing, and I think it's... Um, it's a really worthwhile column if people are interested in this issue. Uh, okay, all right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up here. I want to. I want to give a preview. Our next uh, podcast going to come out next okay. week. We're going to talk about the upcoming issues facing the Jewish education world as they struggle to open um, in this COVID era, both in Israel and in and in Chutzarts. We're talking about what's going on here. Hopefully, we'll have some sense of what's going on in Chutzarts as well. So look for articles and stuff. Um, I want to thank Molly Borowski and Johnny, uh, Johnny Solomon for doing our podcast with us and thank my son uh, Patache for doing the music. I also want to thank uh, the anonymous poster who uh, rated us in iTunes. It helps us very much gain exposure and new users when you not just, not, not just rate us but also write a review. And in general, if the review would be something like, they're awesome, you should really listen to them, <laughs> that would be useful as well. Chasing okay? success. Five-star reviews, that's what we're looking for. It's all good. Anyway, it'll, that'll make us happy and successful. I think that's a good way of putting it. All right. We'll wish you all the best. Shabbat shalom. Thanks, everybody. Have a good week.